Okay, is it working now? Yeah. All right. Uh, I used to work with our next reader uh, about 10 years ago. I had a, I interned at CMJ, which for people of a certain generation was a while, like a music festival. That was a big deal and like a music website and a magazine, which is all far, far, far gone away. But for a while, it was a big deal. And by the time I worked there, it wasn't as much of a big deal, but it was still a little bit of a big deal. And uh, me and him would have lots of fun and goof on bands and it was good times. I'm very much glad he's here. But it's funny because when I was like working with him, like I saw every semester a different group of interns would discover this guy was in like kind of a well-known band and like was sending to the music videos and like I watched the same music clip of him running around in a new bomb, new bomb Turks clip. I'm like, yep, Eric's in a cool band. So uh, I'm glad he's here tonight to drop some knowledge on us. Eric Davidson is a freelance writer on most days, singer for New Bomb Turks and others. The Dillian in between. He's the author of the 90s garage punk history We Never Learn, which is a very good book, and he lives in Queens. Everyone, give it up for Eric Davidson. I was a singer. I think I know how to do this. Thanks. I kind of forgot. Um, we still play once in a while. We're playing a festival in Puerto Rico in uh, February. Uh, it was very fun working with Michael. I just want to say this really quick because this weird shit happened the last couple of days. And so if you don't mind, let me just. So I started working back at this, just get picking up some holiday hours because, you know, food. And I at this, at this coffee shop record store on Court Street in Carroll Gardens and uh, black gold and yesterday I was working and I came in and I'm looking through the records putting something on and there was a smithereens first album which is a pretty good power pop record I put that on I play it the other guys at work there were all talking about how the singer this is one of those weird coincidence deals like when you walk up to a stranger and go you look just like my friend in high school and they go okay anyway and so th so this guy comes in later after we played the smithereens and talked about how the singer passed away this year the singer of the smithereens died and it was sad, and we were talking about it, and that's that. A little while later, a guy comes in, businessman, he's on vacation, or I know, he's on a business trip, but he likes to go to record stores, and he gets talking with us, and he knows all this fucking trivia, right? So he's looking around at records, and he pulls out the smithereens, and he goes, hey, I know this band. He goes, you like this one? I go, yeah, it's the first record. It's really good. He goes, you know, that, that, that singer, it's his birthday today. I was like, that's pretty fucking weird, right? Because we were just talking about how he died. So... So then we get talking some more, and he starts talking about Otis Redding, and I mentioned to him that Otis Redding, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. And as you'll find out from the reading that I'm about to do, I'm very pro-Ohio, no matter the fucking shifting demographics, so sorry about that. But we start talking about how Otis Redding died on the way out of Ohio, and the last performance he ever gave was on a TV show in Ohio called Upbeat. That was the last thing he ever performed on, and when he took a plane from there to a concert, he crashed and he died. So we talked about that. Today, I get, that was yesterday. Today, I get up and my friend posts that the guy who hosted Upbeat died today, right? Pretty weird. So yesterday, I was trying to write, Zach mentioned writing obits and everything. <laughs> Try writing obit about the fucking Continental. Pathetic, right? The Continental is a club in the Lower East Side that's closing. And because I can use the dough and why not write about it, I decided to write this thing about the Continental closing. And a story that I was going to write 
in that well i cut it out but it was with with uh stewart i mentioned seeing that band at that club the only time i ever saw them and then zach i come here today and zach mentions that fucking weird right i, I hope it doesn't keep going i mean frankly i'm tired of the death frankly but all right so um speaking of death there is a connection um i'm very proud of this article i did about a band from cleveland called death of samantha and they were a really great band in the 80s that I loved. And everybody has their kind of um, gateway drug band, you know, like that you met and like they snuck you into shows and that kind of thing. Or you just love them and, they, and be, because of them they made you mixtapes or you learned about this band or that band. Well, Death of Samantha was that band for me. And I've spent most of my adult life trying to explain why they're still great. And early Soul Asylum, also really good. But anyway, um, so this is from The Ugly Things. And before I read it, I would like to give away an issue. Are you guys into a little trivia quick thing here? Is that cool? All right. So what 1986 movie, and then you can read my 10,000-word piece on Death of Samantha in, in Cleveland in the mid-'80s. Uh, what movie, 1986 movie, starred a future Beastie Boys girlfriend, Keanu Reeves, and Crispin Glover, 1986. Also Dennis Hopper, just to give you some, anybody? Yes, yay, there you go. Yeah, now you can read all about obscure yeah. hey. things. <laughs> he might actually enjoy that magazine. Also, Ugly Things is completely fucking analog. It's, they don't put the articles online at all. So if you want it, go to the Ugly Things site. It's a really great magazine. I was very proud to do this. Okay, so here's my fucking article already. Thanks for sticking around, everyone. All right. There's no There's no surf in Cleveland, USA. That was a regional novelty hit from the Euclid Beach Band circa 1979, back when I was just a wee lad starting to borrow records from my older siblings in our basement in Parma Heights, Ohio. Despite my later self being all cynical punk guy and chiding that cheeky tune as goofy localism, it was probably my first introduction to uh, goofy localism. Death of Samantha would become the back alley Pied Pipers of said notion as Cleveland entered the 1980s as a perpetual comeback city. By the mid-1970s, as that industrial uh, boom hub was well into its downturn, so too was original rock and roll. And while the sounds of now mythologized Cleveland proto-punks like the Electric Eels, Rocket from the Tombs, Para-Ubu Mirrors, and Frankenstein captured that desperately strange sound of factories sputtering into oblivion down in the sooty flats... They'd been ignored or forgotten, and the squares in town, of course, gravitated towards No Surf in Cleveland, with its corny, self-effacing humor and approachable musical ripoffs straight from classic rock radio. This one, a Beach Boys swipe. So fuck me if Death of Samantha didn't meld two of the greatest strengths of post-heyday Cleveland, dirty, burning river proto-punk and goofy, self-effacing humor, into the greatest rock and roll of 1980s Ohio. They probably like that North, No Surf song, too. Hey, you like Black Flag and Dream Syndicate, too? That was original, mind you, I wrote this for Ugly Things, which is a very music-centrist man, okay? So there's a couple of wink-wink knowing shit in here, like, oh yeah, that band was in issue 41, that kind of shit. 
Anyway, uh, hey, you like Black Flag and Tomb Syndicate too? That was original Death of Samantha bassist Dave James leaning over an English class circa 1984 and noticing the scribble mass of band names on my notebook. And so began my friendship fandom with that band. Death of Samantha, or DOS as they will henceforth be dubbed for expediency purposes, and because that's what most Cleveland Heps would usually abbreviate it to, was only a few months old. I'd heard of them but hadn't seen them yet. I'd walk home with Dave sometimes as he was already good friends with Eric Barth, a childhood friend of mine who lived down the street and ended up being bassist in Gaunt, who my band, New Bomb Turks, did a split seven inch with years later, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. Uh, I met Dave James at Valley Forge High School, singer-guitarist John Pekovic recalls. I saw he had this zine called Negative Print covering all this punk shit. And I mean, this was Parma. So there were some freaky people, but they were more like burnouts. Burnouts, burnouts, I don't know what your local term for it is, but those were, you know, shop class kids, long hair, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Not music freaks. They talk about gaydar, but in Parma, you could kind of tell music freaks. Like people ask, what was the album that changed your life? And I was like, well, what was the album cover that changed your life? Visually, I could kind of tell if someone over there was into what you were into. Plus, Parma was a good place for comic book shops and record stores, so I thought it was a cool place. One, two, three, four. This need not be explained to anyone who grew up along I-71, but Parma has a long rep for being, well, not cool. It was a suburb just past the sputtering auto factories on the southwest side that got a jump on the white flag 50s and hence already seemed beat up. There were numerous high schools and a big mall, of course. Then in the latter 70s, it was the first suburb in America that was forced by the U.S. government to build some low-cost housing. Desegregation has never made it past Pearl Road's congestion. Working class and large, at its height, at its height the most populous suburb in America at 150,000 plus. Parma did not have the usual white picket fence David Lynch veneer of the lily white post-war suburb. There were dive bars already well settled in, burnouts hanging out in parking lots till all hours, an old mid-century movie theater too, and a train track even, which I only ever went over via city bus on the way downtown to get the fuck away from Parma when I could once I was a teen. Another reason a nervous Reagan-era teen might want to distance himself, herself, from Parma was the fact that right underneath a couple unkempt Little League baseball diamonds on the south end of town were a few abandoned, empty nuclear missile silos created back when Parma was farmland. Supposedly during the height of the Cold War, Parma was one of Russia's top 10 targets in the USA. And next to those silos on the grounds of the community college I went to was once the site of a U.S. military hospital where some injured SS prisoners were housed until they were put in prison, apparently. Or maybe dumped in those silos, I don't know. Not being a wealthy area with neither the architectural history or ethnic diversity of downtown or the east side, nor the nice new homes of farther out west side, not to mention the predominant Polish population in an era when Polak jokes were rust belt de, de rigueur, meant a particular kind of condescension came down. Parma put down started in town as far back as the mid-1960s, first flung from legendary TV uh, horror movie late night TV host, Goulardi. Goulardi lights a cigarette, baby, he lights it. That's the only way to do things, Luke. You do something, do it. You make... Wisecracks about White Sox, pink flamingos on front laws, and those Polak jokes hovered around Brownstown as a fumbling bellwether against all the other jokes you can make about Cleveland in general, which is what the rest of the country did, a lot. If I had a nickel for every time I heard Johnny Carson mention Cleveland, 
Anyway, but for some Parma music freaks, it engendered a kind of microcosm version of the overall self-effacing pride, pride of Cleveland's populace. You'd slowly gather interesting pride crumbs, like one of the Count, this is a very ugly things part, like one of the Count Five was from Parma, and the Cars bassist Benjamin Orr was from Parma, and Neil Giraldo, Pat Benatar's husband, guitarist. Well, like I told you, they were crumbs. Oh, wait, I got one for you. The alarm clocks lived and practiced not five minutes from where I grew up. The alarm clocks did one fucking amazing single in 1965. Anyway, and then when it was put on on Norton years later, the back of the CD, there was a picture of a garage and the band was standing there with their gears. 1965. I fucking knew the house in that picture. That was, that was pretty fucking neat. Death of Samantha appeared in 1983. Oh, wait, I, I skipped there. The, uh, the relative, I'm almost, am I doing too much? I'm talking too much, aren't I? Anyway, Death of Samantha, ah, uh, yes. The relative age of Parma, its size, and close proximity to the edges of Cleveland that are now iconic examples of 1970s inner city deterioration cool were a perfect Petri dish waiting for a cool band to emerge, and so they did. Uh, let's see. You know what? I'm going to skip all that and go to the next thing. Is that okay, or do you want to hear just the last little bit of description of Death of Samantha? Is that okay? It's funny. I think it's all right. All right, fuck it. All right, uh, here we go. Musically, Death of Samantha essentially blended the, the uh, yes, essentially blended the Detroit-inspired ends of Rocket from the Tombs, Para-Ubu, Screechy, imitation of Lake Erie's industrial gears, with Northeast Ohio's early embrace of, embrace of British glitter rock. Their gas tank filled with the most raw early punk, like the Pagans or the Saints. While the band contained a dual guitar attack of the, that could rival television at their grittiest, there was also a loosey-goosey New York doll swagger to the band's stage swish, and singer-guitarist John Pekovic played that up further with a cough, cough syrup and vodka-throated lounge singer sneer. Then add in what New Bomb Turks bassist Matt Reber long ago dubbed the What the Fuck Factor that Ohio bands often genetically possess, an incongruously odd side character characteristic that any other band of the particular genre would never even consider. For Death of Samantha, the what-the-fuck factor mostly emanated from drummer Steve-O's persona as a smiley uncle who preferred Elvis jumpsuits or garish leisure suits and played like he lost a bet. During their early months, DOS was viewed as the opposite of what an increasingly self-important Cleveland music scene populace wanted Cleveland to be known for. We're the rock and roll capital of the world. Instead, here was a band who really knew Cleveland from the alley up. Also interesting because today is the day that the Rock Hall of Fame put out their list of the people who got in. I believe the Cure made it. Is that why you're wearing that shirt? Yeah, well, the MC5 didn't make it, okay? So there. Anyway, Devo did, I think. Also missed also from Akron. See, they hate the fucking Midwest. I'm kidding. We love the Rock Hall. All right. And then can I read one more short thing? Is it cool? Okay. So that's true. Everybody, basically, if you follow all through lines, and most American rock and roll goes back to Midwest. I saw Trent Reznor in a terrible power... A techno pop band that covered like uh, Hall and Oates and shit. They were awful. I, I, I think everything good he did is because of heroin, frankly. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I know. It's a terrible thing to say, but let's, you know, let's be honest. It's not, I'm kidding, Trent. You're fine. Exotic Birds. I saw them. They played with Death of Samantha. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> opened up for Death of Samantha. Death of Samantha had shows where like uh, the Smashing Pumpkins opened up for them and Nirvana opened up for them and they, what's that? Yeah, he did that, yeah. Yeah, Death of Samantha didn't show up on any movie or TV show ever. But they did turn into Cobra Verde, who ended up being on a bunch of TV shows and movies and ended up playing with Guided by Voices and Not a Surf and all these other bands. So, One character, um, I'm talk about the Fantasy Theater. The Fantasy Theater was a place that had DIY shows and stuff, which one of those dilapidated old movie theaters were in the Midwest for kids that have shows. One character amongst the Fantasy Theater's menagerie of leather-clad punks, thrift-besotted collegiates, 
aging loft artists, a few intriguing hippies, and lots of bad new wave haircuts, was one character so improbable I often wonder if I'm making it up myself after all these years. Known simply as Lizard, he stood about six foot four, lanky and slinky, in tight black ripped jeans, a tall jet black pompadour, and big 70s Elvis sunglasses hovering over a snarling smile, all of which made him a luxe interior doppelganger, right down to his big cramps logo painted on the back of his black leather coat, which had a police badge right over his heart. He packed a gun, too. Yep, he was a Cleveland police officer. And they sent him to punk shows because everyone respected him for how cool he looked and wouldn't make trouble in his presence. This has been an Atlantic Transmission production. Hey!